this week, um, we want to look at the question um, of how uh, the Bible and the church is to frame its discussion and its understanding of human sexuality, uh, especially in the light of the sexual revolution and some of the things that really have happened even in the, in the last 12 months uh, in our own country uh, regarding this sort of uh, cultural discussion around the nature of uh, sexuality. But since it's my last time to be with you, I wanted to do just a quick sort of overview of what I hoped that you would walk away with uh, in this series, um, uh, for starters. And so one of the things that we've begun with is a, is a discussion on the nature of the church. And what I wanted you to get from that was this idea uh, that the primary uh, sociological identity that a Christian has uh, is this thing called the church. In other words, first and foremost, it's not that you're white or African-American uh, or Hispanic. It's not that you are in a certain socioeconomic class. Uh, it's not any of those things. But the idea of me being uh, a sociological creature, a participant in a culture, primarily means in the church. The word literally means the called out ones, that there are those who have been called out from, uh, uh, from the meandering masses into God's grace. And they, as they gather, they come together as the church, okay? But then there's the second entity, uh, this uh, second sort of a broad way in which the Bible talks about your uh, uh, interaction with the world in particular, and they call it the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, we said, is a much broader realm than the church. The church is actually very narrow in its scope. It, it really does really three simple things. It, it, it keeps the word of God central. Uh, it presents the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And, and it exercises what we call godly oversight or discipline that, that the old Scots used to say. The kingdom, though, is the place where we, having gained a vision of Jesus' lordship over every area of life, it's where we go when we leave this place, okay? Uh, it's, it's, it's old Miss. And wherever we see the actual lordship of Jesus come into reality and where we can see it, where people are repenting and righteousness is reigning, then we can say the kingdom of God has shown up there. Does that make sense? So the question then becomes, well, all right, so am I like a church member or a kingdom member? Uh, what are those two things? I'm so glad you said that because what I've tried to say to you is this little phrase that I think will help us, especially as a church going forward, in keeping true to what God wants our mission to be. Did you catch that? If we're going to keep true to what God has really called the church to be, this little phrase I think is helpful, that the church is the impetus for the kingdom. And I tried to tell you that the word impetus, look at that inch up there and like magic, <clears throat> is simply this. An impetus is a force that encourages a particular action or makes it more energetic and effective. I love that definition. In other words, something is the impetus for something else if it was the spark plug for it. So you know that the church is doing what she needs to do when we are the inspirational and energetic force for the transformation that we're longing to see out there. Does that make sense? We come here, as it were, to be reminded to our sort of spiritual amnesiac minds of who we really are and what God is really doing. And then we carry those things out uh, into the world. The church is the impetus for the kingdom. If you remember nothing else, uh, that's a good one. Because if you keep these things in sync, it'll help you steer clear of what this church would not participate in, which would be a spirit of liberalism. I tried to say that in terms of church and kingdom, the, the, the liberalism movement would sort of dissolve the church into the kingdom, where what it is that makes the church very distinctive, like, like uh, belief in the authority of the Bible and the efficacy of prayer, those things end up getting kind of um, diluted in the water, if you will, uh, in the name of going and doing social action. That's the liberal approach. But then there's an equal problem with sort of a, a, a fundamentalistic or conservative approach where, where the, the unwritten assumption is that anything that's good that can be done out there in the world to assault the kingdom of Satan can only be done within the four walls of the church. That's a mistake too. Because we don't assume that if something good is going to happen in the world that it's got to be funneled through this assembly. 
That's a mistake also. That's the fundamentalistic approach where megachurches sort of came from and, like, and the like. What we tried to say is we wanted to take more of a transformational view where the church is, as it were, uh, a little bit porous. Does that make sense? Where people are flowing in and out of the assembly of God to get an idea of what the kingdom ought to look like and then going out into their respective places, whether you're an educator or whether you're a politician or whether you work in the world of finance or maybe you're an artist. Wherever God has called you as an individual to be, you are seeking to bring the lordship of Christ in that area. Does that make sense? So this latter half of the semester, we've been looking at these various topics. We, we talked about the task of evangelism. If this is true, the whole church kingdom distinction, what does it mean for us to share our faith? We spent two weeks talking about that. We also looked a couple weeks ago at what it meant to be uh, the church in the world uh, in the area of science. Dr. Hom was able to walk us through that last week. I spent a little bit of time the week before that talking about Christianity in the arts. How should Christians view the artistic expression, music? And, you know, some of you are still trying to get over the the Tupac uh, quote that we got during that. That's all right. You'll be okay. Um, Today, we need to sort of put our big toe into the world uh, of human sexuality uh, and the topic that sort of is uh, uh, swirling around in that regards. Um, and I'll say this, uh, you've sat through a number of these discussions uh, if you've been uh, a regular attender of Winter Sunday School. Um, and and my, my intention this week is to be far more uh, theoretical about the ideas behind the sexual revolution and some of the movements that are going on very presently in our culture now, uh, rather than be sort of more specific. And, and yeah, my, my intention is not to be um, uh, provocative in any way this morning, but rather try to suggest, because it's a question that I get all the time, that's a black screen, Oh, my picture's not coming up. I have the best picture here of the word sex on it. <laughs> really, like if y'all just form a single file line, I'll just show it to you. Um, man, what a disappointment that is. You're such a disappointment, Les. Anyway, um, so th- th- in other words, that's the goal is to try to get an idea of how we got uh, to where we are uh, and a little idea about what I think the Christian church ought to be thinking of in terms of this, okay? Uh, so let's begin with this guy. Uh, this is Aziz Ansari, a uh, very popular, uh, very funny comedian. Uh, he's got a, I think he's got a Netflix show that won uh, an Emmy. Um, well, he actually won his first Emmy a year ago um, um, at the <clears throat> during the celebration, actually a little over a year ago. While he was there, it's come out, he met a young lady at the, uh, at the party, a quick after-dinner party. And so he asked her out on a date for the next week. Uh, afterwards, they went out on a date and sort of in the midst of that sort of uh, place after dinner, uh, when they went back to his place, uh, he made some rather uh, sort of uh, unsavory, uh, dare we say, sort of clumsy sexual advances at this woman, uh, which were only partially reciprocated by her. Well, a year later, uh, which was only a couple of weeks ago, when he was receiving his second Emmy for this, uh, there was that young lady noticed that uh, Aziz was wearing this little pin here, which was... Um, his way of standing in solidarity uh, with the hashtag MeToo movement, uh, which you need to be aware of, uh, because this movement is attempting to highlight, if you've lived under a rock for a while, um, the fact that there is a a movement among women to stand up and say, I too have been a victim of sexual assault and sexual abuse along with so many of these other people. And folks are coming out of the woodwork, and women are being quite honest about it. And this woman who had been on this date with Ansari uh, interviewed with a magazine to tell her story of how she felt like she was disrespected by uh, him. So there was an article that was sort of circulating around by a woman by the name of um, uh, Elizabeth Bruning who basically said that, that, that the, for some reason the Aziz Ansari case highlighted the, the need for a new sexual revolution. And the headline kind of caught my eye, and I thought to myself, I'd like to see what she has to say about this. And at one point she says this. She goes, you know, one of the principal outcomes of the sexual revolution was to establish, listen to this, that sex is just like any other social interaction. Nothing taboo or sacred about it. It's no big deal. In other words, the idea sort of coming up out of the movement of the 50s and 60s was a celebration of the fact that sexuality is no more sacred, no more weird than any other sexual interaction that you, or interaction you might have. But she says, you know what? I think we might need to rethink this. 
She says, you know, and this is not coming from any Christian perspective at all. That's not the point of this at all. She says, but the rules of cordiality and respect, in effect, should be honored among sexuality as a special case, uh, no matter what. So that by the end of the article, she says this, instead, we ought to appreciate that sex is a domain that is so intimate and personal that more harm can be done than in most social situations. <laughs> it's funny that we have to have this conversation. <clears throat> and that given that heightened, that heightened capacity for harm, we should expect people to operate with greater conscientiousness, concern, and care in that domain than in others. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> Look, if you haven't noticed, we are living in crazy... Uh, excuse me, extremely confusing uh, sexually cultural times. Anyone who is older than 10 years old in the room should be relatively shocked by the ground that's been covered culturally and where we are. What's interesting, though, is I've come to understand that the confusion is not just among those sort of, you know, fundamentalistic Christians who are out there harumphing over, you know, these kids today. That's not just where the confusion reigns, that the confusion is actually even among those who would consider themselves the most forward and progressive in these ideas. Um, one, of the, the, one of the interesting articles that I stumbled across a little over a year ago and shared it then <clears throat> was how interesting there is movements among the LGBT community to kind of get clear on exactly what they are saying. Um, uh, you know, for a while, there was sort of a, a conflict in the LGBT community over those who tried to say uh, that their orientation was a lifestyle choice of theirs. Have you ever said that to someone who was struggling with same-sex attraction? They're like, well, I just don't think people should be making that choice in life. And there was a, there was a, there's an internal sort of revulsion that comes out of someone that says, no, 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 no. This is an orientation of mine. I was born this way. These things are innate to me. You cannot simply say that someone got up and chose this. I didn't choose to be this way. This is the way I was born. This is innate to me. What's fascinating is, is they have now found themselves in many ways in a little bit of philosophical conflict with the trans community. Because the transgendered community is coming along and very offended by that particular language because they're saying, look, just because you were born in some particular way doesn't mean that you actually have to conform to the rather arbitrary biological function of your genitalia. It's not obliged for you. So suddenly there's a conflict between some in the LGBT community and the trans community about whether or not we really are born this way or not. And you can be sitting there either watching the news or reading a paper and thinking to yourself, my head is swimming. I have no idea what to think about these kinds of things. There's a, there's a pastor, pastor in New York who tweeted this. I thought it was so funny. He goes, you know, it's almost as if sex is not just a meaningless commodity traded between consenting Uh, between the consenting, but in fact is an act so deeply powerful that maybe we should consider, I don't know, wrapping it in an institution of personal commitment and public accountability. (laughs) I love that. Um, Look, there really is no, who knows where the culture around us is going to land in the next couple of years, but I, I don't think there's another time in which we as the church need to ask better questions about what it means to be the church in the world of the touchy area of our sexuality. But I recently came across a book summary, and I need to be honest with you that I read a book summary. It was a lengthy book summary uh, uh, on the the, the Gospel Coalition online that really helped sort of um, conceptualize for me the major arcs in this discussion surrounding the sexual revolution uh, and, and, and how Christians ought to face it. I really love uh, the direction I see this book going. And it's called A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing uh, by a former British uh, professor of psychology named Glenn Harrison. Uh, uh, And again, from what I've read of the excerpts and the summaries and a number of different reviews on it, I would warmly commend this to you. But his basic argument is this, before we dive into a little bit of a chapter-by-chapter discussion of it this morning, is that the sexual revolution won over the popular imagination because they understood the power of story. I want to launch this out here now. We've actually talked about this in Sunday schools past, but I hope you end up hearing this 
a fair amount from me uh, if we get an opportunity in the future. And that is that there comes something different that <clears throat> when you simply deal in the, me- in the realm of argumentation and facts, that will have a certain impact on people. But when you wrap those ideas up in a very compelling story, the stories that the, cult- the culture is telling among themselves, the ones that we tell to each other, the ones that we entertain ourselves with, the ones that we explore in our own imaginations, those particular things have a much higher impact. You can draw together radical new ideologies that even though they may be hard to to grasp and difficult and complex in nature, you put them in a simple story and the narrative themselves will teach people about it. And Harrison begins to ask this question, what was it What was the story that was being told about who we are as sexual creatures in the 1960s that sort of created where we got to today? And so he basically splits his his book up into two sections. On the one hand, the first book is, how in the world did we get to where we are today? What was it that brought us to this place? What was the thinking that sort of was put together? And then secondly, how does Christianity present, in the title of his book, a better story? that what's being told about human sexuality is failing in our day. And can we come up with a better story? Okay? So those are the two big things. <clears throat> this is how this is going to work. i got a bunch of quotes I want to throw at you, okay? Some ideas that I want you to sort of grasp that are under big headings. Uh, and let's just see kind of what, um, what lands and what doesn't. Okay? But our first section is how it is that we got here. Harrison's first idea is this. How is it that radical individualism went mainstream? And we've got to define our terms here. What he begins by saying is, is that in the 60s and the 50s, you had a very <clears throat> radical movement that was going on in terms of people's moral ideas towards sex and marriage. Um, you can speculate all day about what it was that caused this. Uh, there's a lot of people that want to talk about post-war prosperity. Uh, you know that when all the, uh, uh, the greatest generation came home from war, In the 1950s, we began to produce in a way which no other generation really had. And so the children of that generation sort of rose up and for whatever, were living in an idea of prosperity. I'm not sure if I'm that rosy about it because I do think that in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of people that have worked hard to tell the truth about what World War II was like. Um, And I do think that there's some case to be made uh, for other research that said those men who came back from war were not given the cultural uh, means to talk about what went on there. And, and you watch you know, movies that sort of work on being super uh, you know, uh, graphic about it, and you're like, I get it. Uh, I wouldn't want to talk about what happened. But when they, had, when they didn't have those, those, those um, uh, 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 tools to be able to do so, uh, largely what happened is they crawled inside a bottle. And you have a generation, I think, that sort of grew up in homes uh, of great repression, uh, even perhaps uh, substance abuse and alcoholism. Um, who knows? You can play armchair sociologist all you want. But what what Harrison says I think is fundamentally right is what grew up out of this idea was a a mentality that has reigned over uh, uh, cultural discourse since the 60s. And that is, he describes it as, expressive individualism. You need to remember this phrase because it's actually very helpful to understand kind of where we've gotten today. What is the dominant philosophy of young people coming up through the college system today? I get this question all the time, and I always end up going back to this. After the last 25 years of dealing with college students, I can say that the reigning philosophy of life is expressive individualism. What does it mean? It simply means this. I am an individual, and the only true human principle in life is that my true self must be known, figured out, and then expressed. And no one has the right to challenge that sovereignty. The sovereignty of myself, who I am as an individual, I've discovered who I am. And what happened was, is the sexual revolution began to piggyback upon another moral wave that was sweeping through the nation in the area of racial justice. And, and, and for a lot of Christians, they found themselves on unsteady ground. On the one hand, especially in the South, you had Christians that weren't interested in repenting for racial sins of their past. It was, it was like you know, the preacher left, you know, preaching and went to meddling, you know. Um, 
That was one aspect of it. But in many ways, Christians also found themselves torn because some of those that were standing up and saying, do you see that your structures crushed the African-American community in our world for the last 100 years? Now the Civil War is not over. And you know what? Your same social mores have kept us down in the area of our sexuality as well. Did you see that? And suddenly Christians were like, at least the more progressive of them thought, you know, for whatever reason... When someone stands up, like Martin Luther King Jr., and says, you know, these are people created in the image of God, and you have a responsibility to love that person. There was a resonance in the soul with that. But on the other hand, when all of a sudden the sexual revolution began to piggyback on top of that, it became much more difficult. Hold that thought. Because it is exactly, I think, what happened when the LGBT community came along 15 to 20 some odd years ago and began to do the exact same thing. Because they scooped up for themselves the moral and social lingo of the 1960s racial struggle. It's fascinating if you watch it. A lot of us are sort of dizzied by, wow, how did there be so much social acceptance of the things that we've sort of rejected in the past? That's the boat that it rode, okay? So the second point that we make, though, is the question is, how then did radical individualism change the way we think? How did it rewire us? Well, Harrison argues that this thing is really just a form of an ancient Gnosticism. Don't worry about what Gnosticism is for now. We'll talk about it sometime later. Bottom line is there's an inner you. (laughs) There's a deep inner you beneath all the layers of, of cultural and religious control. And you really can only truly be free as an individual until you are a true individual self. So the start listening for this in almost every commercial that you watch. And you'll be shocked at how, how often, how much how prevalent it is. Because the idea of rejecting an external authority as being a moral good in and of itself is really, it, it's, it is completely unquestioned as the only way really to flourish. If you really want to flourish, you eventually have to look and say, throw off every constraint. And <laughs> you have to throw off the constraint even of your own biology. How is it that the, that the transgendered community Uh, uh, rose up with the sort of social acceptance that they did and the struggle that they did? Well, the answer was, as we begin to question all authority, why not question the authority of my very biology? It doesn't make any difference, sort of, this arbitrary act of nature that happened to me. I I can choose my own path, regardless of what my body looks like or may have been born with. Expressive individualism. says, on matters of ethics and morality, radical individualism shifts people's gut intuitions Ooh, I like that phrase, gut intuitions. We're not talking about like super mind the- uh, philosophies that people have. I'm talking about their gut. It shifts them away from those that uphold general sacred principles, such as the sanctity of life, towards those that respond to individual needs, such as compassion and concern for fairness. As a result, people's moral concerns often revolve around the needs of the few rather than the needs of the many. For those of you who have Star Trek leanings in you, you're kind of geeking out right here for a moment. Those who don't are like, maybe he's a geek, and you'd be right about that. <clears throat> how, individual, how radical individualism changes the way we think about right and wrong. Um, but basically what he's saying is, is now the conversation about right and wrong is now inherently emotionally charged. It's an emotional thing. Because our gut level reactions are now telling us that the role, in, the, the role that I must play in life is a role of empowering and engaging with uh, groups of individuals who are themselves in an, in an oppressed minority. In other words, the identity of being an oppressed minority for certain sort of sexual mores is itself a badge of honor, something to be celebrated. Uh, it's one of the reasons, I think, why the African-American community has been very ambivalent towards this sort of sexual revolution. Because on one hand, they want to be like, you know, why don't you come and ask us what it's like to be an oppressed minority? Uh, not that great. I'm not exactly sure that your experiences and your sexual revolutions you're having compare to the experiences of my grandfather, who was beaten when he wanted to go to your church, or your water fountain, or whatever. Confusing, is it not? He then moves on to talk about how activists used great stories to move people's moral elephants. Moral elephants. And what he talks about is the power of stories. And change makers in the world of the sexual revolution began to condense these intellectual arguments into these very memorable, bite-sized messages, right? That came out as stories. 
And so you begin to see the power of television kind of move in. Uh, uh, my wife and I are just uh, addicted to these uh, CNN decade series. Have y'all watch these? You know, the 60s. I can now sing the song. It's kind of action piano playing in the background. Um, you know, the 60s. And they'll do the, like topic. Do you realize that like in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, there's four of them now, um, every one of them has an entire episode dedicated to the power of television and how much television was a part of our moral framework uh, in fashioning sort of who we were. Um, and this is certainly no anti-television discussion. I can promise you that. I simply want to tell you that they began to sort of produce biopics and, and dramas that elevated the heroic struggle of the individual who went out to look for people's individual needs rather than sort of wrestling with these big principles that were kind of clunky and hard to prove and hard to manage by, by comparison. So the entertainment industry seeds so effectively on this that that began to be the water in which we drank culturally, okay? The entertainment industry, incredible. By the way, fascinating idea that the route by which people went for social change was through the arts. Note to self, he referenced his two weeks ago discussion. Interesting. But the point was this. Christians spent the better part of their time, I think during the 60s and 70s, quoting their arguments. You know, we, we presented our case. It was like, this. that's what the Bible says. And in many ways, that was lost in a broader cultural example. Why? Because we weren't addressing the stories that were being told, nor certainly, but far less, attempting to create stories that were trying to counter the, the, the big narrative. Fascinating. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, that Christians failed. Christians have always been good at gossiping the gospel. <laughs> you know, people, are, people are still getting converted all over the place. But what we find is, is Christianity has now migrated away from the West and is now only flourishing in great sort of wide swaths in Africa, northern India, and in China. The gospel has gone to poor communities, as it is wont to do. <clears throat> but then Harrison goes on to talk about how activists played a key role in making the revolution happen. Um, and what he simply says here is that during this time, you began to have advocacy groups that grew up. These people that began to say, what we want to do is literally build communities that are based upon pride and ownership of these, uh, uh, of these values that we have, these newfound internal gut-level reactions to the idea of oppression. Um, especially in Britain, because actually Harrison is British, these communities were much more distinct. They had clothing that defined them, whether it was the punk movement of the 80s or the sort of early forms of the LGBT movement in the late 90s and early 2000s. The bottom line was, was there was a whole narrative that underpinned everything these advocacy groups did. And then, of course, when you had for the late 2000s, you began to have a brand new powerful tool at the fingertips of these people, which was the power of social media, which is incredibly efficient at getting ideas out. But, as we've also seen, that powerful tool can be used as a negative tool of public punishment and shaming. I've quoted on a number of occasions that wonderful little book by um, uh, Ronson. What's his first name? Somebody Ronson. Um, So you've been publicly shamed. It's a wonderful little exposition on just how powerful um, something going viral about you can actually be. A lot of people cower in fear from those particular things as they do. I can't say that I blame them. So the, the, the activists play these roles by forming these affinity groups. And so why surviving as a minority means you start needing to act like one what basically, what Harrison is saying is, is Christians need to, in our day, to begin to take on the cloak of being a minority and thinking about ourselves in terms of minority because we're facing, as it were, according to Harrison, a double jeopardy of shame that come from two sides. On the one hand, Harrison assumes that if the gospel is true, it's not just that there's the potential to be shamed for your moral belief system as a Christian, but there's also an internal shame structure that's functioning in you that makes you struggle with where you stand in the midst of those standards. It's a perfect explanation of why so many Christians, I think, feel frozen. Because on the one hand, they're getting messages on the outside. They're like, oh, that doesn't sound right, and that doesn't sound healthy. But who am I to speak? Who am I to say anything? Because of the shame that's coming up out of me. And so Harrison says, we got to have a story that can deal with both. 
It's got to be able to address not only sort of the way in which we look at the world around us, but the story that are going on on the inside. This is what he says. He says, these dynamics underscore the need for Orthodox Christians to begin to act like a minority. Convictions and distinctive modes of life must be actively nurtured and sustained. This involves empathic opinion um, uh, leaders. Uh, That just means a a, a leader who um, emotionally connects with you and says, I know what that must be like. I got it who are capable of winning hearts and minds in a robust defense of their convictions. And then it also requires that minority beliefs are made plausible and real in the lived experience of creative and internally supportive communities. What's he saying? He's simply saying that we've got to learn to be together as a community that says, you know what? We are not able in any vivid way to control what goes on outside of here. Though that may give a lot of us indigestion who are very used to the moral majority movement of the 80s where if we just got the right man in the White House in America, it would be awesome. Well, that failed. We're done with that, okay? What we need to do then, though, he's saying, is to concentrate on our own communities by building better stories here among us, among we as Christians. So what does that better story look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. That leads us to our next point. I'm right on time here. Good. How do we begin to build a better story? Number one, we need to begin with a Christian critique of the sexual revolution that starts with ourselves. It begins with us. The gospel is supposed to give Christians, before it ever starts talking about somebody else, the ability to be honest about our, and by our I don't mean our communities, even though that's part of it, But I mean, us as individuals, our own deep shame and fear that is attendant to our own sexual brokenness. In whatever range that happens, whether it's the life of the mind, whether it's behaviors that are the world would consider illicit, would they ever come out to light? Uh, Whether it's an actual brokenness in your own marriage through an affair or through some other breach of trust between you and your spouse? whether it's through the the pain and the brokenness of divorce and separation, or even as we're now finding sexual assault, a temper that you used to excuse, gentlemen, is just being me when I lose control a little bit, but under anyone else's definition would maybe get you arrested? Hmm. Even child abuse? Have ever excused or sort of smooth over uh, experiences that I've had with children, my own even? And again, no matter what you say about those experiences, there is building up inside of the soul a powerful shame that wants nothing else than to hide that exposure. I don't want anybody to know about that. But what Harrison is saying is sort of unnervingly true, that the gospel comes along and gives people the power to be honest and say, our goal is not to return back to the good old days, because you know what? There were no good old days. Harrison says, there can be no going backery. I don't know if that's the way British people speak or whatever. There can be no going backery to some bucolic paradise of the 1950s that never actually existed. It did not exist. The sexual revolution is forcing us to rethink, to rethink our grasp of the biblical moral vision, and it is, an opportun- it is an opportunity rather than a problem, and we should be ready to seize it, he says. But that begins by actually owning up to our own junk. The world will never understand or never hear us until we learn, and again, I'm not talking about in a lurid way, to talk about our shame. This is not my notes. This is dangerous. You're warned. Um, I'll say this. I find over and over again that that, that when I say things like that, there's a reaction among a lot of, of at least college students that I speak to males among them who will come up and speak to me afterwards who will freeze up at that thought because they say, okay, I'm assuming what Les is talking about is like, let's say maybe a Sunday night evening worship service, uh, me getting up and saying to everyone all of the terrible, dirty things I've ever done, thought, or said. Is that what you're saying, Les? No, I'm not. Because I do believe that there is a sense of wisdom in public sins demand public confession, Private sins are appropriate in a place of private confession. So I realize that in a room this large, there is no way that there's not enough sexual brokenness to make everyone in the room blush. And and that's a personal statement with me. 
But you know what? It doesn't mean that you have to suddenly imagine the ultimate sort of public square exposure for that. You know where it might start? You ought to go talk to a counselor. And I've got some great ones. There's some people here in town that do fantastic work. You may want to come talk to a pastor at the church or something like that. But the truth is, as long as that thing is on the inside, that shame, as long as it's kind of bouncing around inside your conscience, it is wreaking havoc. And if what Harrison is saying is true, it means that there needs to be some sense in which that, that's getting out. And again, not out in public, but maybe with someone that you really trust or even someone that you will gladly pay cash money to trust with that information. That's a great place to start. Okay? Food for thought. So the revolution, though, this is another important piece of this, promised more and better sex, but it has failed. You must grasp this. This surprises people every time I talk about it. Um, I began to first encounter this in the early 2000s with the Friends with Benefits movement. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Friends with Benefits was this great idea. This is fantastic. Clearly born in the mind of a 14-year-old boy um, <laughs> that I should be able to have sex with someone and it really just mean nothing. Like, they're just a friend of mine. But every now and then we get together and fool around. You know how it is. And even, I mean, within the first year of beginning to hear people talk in this language, kind of using it, um, there were reports coming out where they were like, uh, this ain't working. Because someone gets emotionally involved. Period. In other words, there was this attempt to be like, sure, let's go ahead and divorce these two. It just didn't work. And what began to happen was the statistics came back and said that people on the whole are having less and less sex. There was an article in 2009, almost 10 years old, in the New York Times that described the sexless marriage as a new epidemic in America. That in shocking levels, people were not sleeping with each other in marriages. Statistics coming out of even, um, some, there have been a couple of uh, landmark Japanese uh, 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 um, studies that have been downright alarming. But either way, it's not that people are having wild, crazed sex, regardless of how it's portrayed in the news media. The truth is, it ain't happening at all. So much for the promise. I, I, it's very interesting that for some reason that just feels a little more like God's judgment. You know, we oftentimes think of God when he judges. Like, what are we going to do when God judges? I think there's going to be a lightning bolt. There's going to be fire from heaven. We're all going to burn. And we'll be like, you know, no, actually, it may be far more subtle. It may just be that the glory and beauty that he made to exist in a beautiful marriage is just going to go away. Hmm, that's sad. And then the crazy thing is, is he talks about how the kids end up paying the price of their parents' freedoms. Uh, look, it, it is fairly usual when the devil begins to move, it's the children that get the lion's share of the, um, of the, uh, of the pain. Cohesive communities, great schools, strong families. Social, social scientists continue to say that these are the best protectors of children. And when all of a sudden these things start to deteriorate, everyone suffers. And the retreat from marriage seems to be the biggest sort of factor constant. Marriage has an ability all its own to build strong family. It binds men to their responsibilities, and it sort of flourishes women <clears throat> in the fulfillment of, of managing uh, the nurturing relationships she wants with her family. Harrison says this, the pornographication of childhood is almost symbolic of the revolution's inability to provide a moral framework robust enough for true human flourishing. The revolution has a clear idea of what it's against, but what is it for? Beyond vague notions of inclusion and diversity, the revolution seems to have little that is positive, say, about the true meaning of sex and sexuality. In other words, Christian, you are not, this is a big deal, you are not one of the have-nots when it comes to the discussion about sexuality in our world. There is no need for you to be insecure. The richness of the biblical description of sex is a compelling moral vision with beauty in it. And again, there has to be some sort of stripping away of, of human Victorian attitudes about it, most of which start with this, la 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 we don't talk about sex. It starts with getting rid of that and then beginning to celebrate among people that we're not afraid to talk about these things. Yeah, and I go to church. The story then goes on to need to to identify the fact that your goal, your sort of journey for self-authentication has been a drag. 
It's a treadmill, as a matter of fact. Because what he says is, is if you are a young person, or even an old person, who are simply trying to identify this inner core, you know, that allows me to sort of move between these different roles and, and sense it, you know, my real, true, authentic self, man, that's exhausting. Man, high schoolers in college, folks, please listen to this. <laughs> it is hard to find an inner story about you that can pull all the stuff together. Man, I get it. Man, I, I, mm. it's fun to have children in high school, but I wouldn't go back to high school. <laughs> Not in a million years. I know for a lot, Ginger had this glorious high school experience, and she hates it when I say this. <clears throat> I, I, I wouldn't go back for anything. It was so hard because I struggled so deeply with trying to figure out who it was I was going to be. And, and, and I had friends that sort of drew something out of me, and then by myself I was kind of something different. Then I kind of went to church, and that felt totally different. And the schizophrenia liked to have killed me. Seriously. And that's what the depression of late college for me really, really was. But my friends, asking a teenager to bear the burden of a self-psychosexual identity at the very age when their bodies are just then getting ready to long for that sexual experience is is a wild-eyed tyranny. It's like, it's like seventh and eighth grade that people are coming out and declaring themselves to be bisexual. Because really the only conversation they've ever had about the idea of sexuality took place between them and a pornographic image that they searched for on their phones. And again, you can, you can decry the moral problem of that. Well, we've got to take away these phones. It's not the phone's problem. It's the problem of saying we have foisted something because we believe that expressive individualism is the way people ought to live and saying, so tell us who you are. And the culture around them just celebrates them as they do so. That is so brave. You came out. Whether heterosexual or homosexual, either way how you came out. It's celebrated in that sense. And again, my, my, my mercy <laughs> to the high schoolers and the college students in the room is to be like, hey, hey slow down, buckaroo. <laughs> I promise you, there's plenty of trouble to worry about as you go on, but let's be really careful before we sort of buy into um, <clears throat> a, an identity that even you are just now putting your big toe into the water of. And that, frankly, has kind of been influenced by stuff that's really just not true. Pornographic image is, not a, is, not a, is a lie. Forget whatever you know, shame it brings up to think about pornography, but the, but the, the idea itself is also a lie, like, hmm, just hold off a little bit before you start buying the farm on an identity that is you. Time out. Just a little bit. Sorry. That wasn't in the notes either. <clears throat> so here's what Harrison's final point. And I'll finish with this. Our story, our Christian story when it comes to human sexuality, begins when we are welcomed into God's reality. Man, this is so good. Here's what he says. He says, there are four things we need to realize about God's reality. Sorry for the microscopic print. He says, number one, God has spoken. And we don't need to figure it out for ourselves. The reality around us is not self-constructed. It's a big old point of contention. Okay? It's not the reality that you make for yourself. It's a reality that you come into. The way I constantly used to say it to the college students was, is it's like a block of wood. <laughs> for all the woodworkers in the... In the for all the mass amount of woodworking college students out there, this completely connected with them. Um, <laughs> you have a block of wood. If, if, if you go with your hand along the grain of the block of wood, you can experience everything that there is about that wood. It's smoothness, it's roughness, whatever. But if you turn it around and you go against the grain, you will splinter up your life. And is it not possible that some of the pain that you feel in college and in high school are the splinters of going against God's grain of reality. And that is not a guilt statement to you. Oh, you're right, right, I know, I know. It's not guilt. I'm just trying to have compassion on you and say maybe, maybe some of these wounds that you're feeling are self-inflicted. <laughs> maybe there's some relief from that. Number two, God's word, which is revealed both in the book of nature and more fully in the revelation of scripture, welcomes us into his reality. And we flourish as we live with the grain of his reality. There it is. There's the grain. Yeah. In other words, we're not talking about getting you to follow the rules because people who break the rules make us as religious people nervous. 
That is not, <laughs> that is not, the, it's not the vision that we're casting out there. No, we're saying God has made you with a manufacturer's design. And if you're, the more obedient you are to that design, the more you flourish. You go to the Old Testament, hear how the prophets are appealing to their people. They're saying, oh, why would you die? Why, why, why would you want to do something that in the end was not good for you? That's why we're speaking. For the Christian, identity, therefore, is not discovered within or self-construct, with some self-constructed idea, but revealed by God and lived out in his reality. He defines the terms of my sexuality. And there, finally, whatever happens, God is good. And bringing our vision on these foundations puts us on the road to human flourishing. God's word is spoken. So what does this mean? Well, how does the biblical vision of sex confront shame and put the gospel on display? Well, look, even secularists are beginning to notice how powerful a force shame is on the modern mind. In many ways, it's sort of, in a strange way, it's replaced the modern idea of guilt. People will tell you that guilt is kind of a lost art in our particular world. That's very true. Uh, But there's still shame that's sort of rising up at that. And I want to introduce you to someone that you you need to know about. His name is Jordan Peterson. And if your young people have not been listening to him, I promise you they will. Um, What Peterson is sort of setting forth and grabbing all kinds of YouTube uh, clip time for, just do a little quick, type in Jordan into YouTube. And I guarantee all his stuff is going to come up. Peterson is attempting to construct um, from a purely socio-scientific perspective as a social scientist himself, social psychologist himself, uh, in, I think, University of Toronto, if I'm not mistaken, um, a vision of moral responsibility taken for men. And again, I'm, I'm telling you right now that when you go back and look up, you're going to see things. I do, I, we, me and some friends have not figured out whether the man is a Christian yet, okay? Which means probably not. But he is grabbing boatloads of people who are following him. Why? Because he is first of all saying we have got to address the shaming of the modern male soul in our particular culture. And until we start with that idea, we will never have a compelling vision for how we ought to act in society. Now, you're going to find when you do some of the searches that he ends up getting sort of known for a lot of his stands against free speech and some of the oppressive, some, he's getting sort of thrown into an alt-right uh, uh, political world, which he, a place I don't think he necessarily belongs. Uh, but you need to hear me. He's getting mass amounts of attention because he's looking at men and saying, you need to grow up. That there's, there's part of your DNA which is longing you to grow up. So the Bible looks and tells us to look into our sexual desires, yes, but to also look along our sexual desires. And as we do, to begin to see that they are all leading us to a relationship between Jesus and his church. In heaven, it is not that there will be no marriage in heaven. It is that there will be one marriage in heaven. Us, his body, married to Christ. And all of our marriages and our sexuality are pointers to that reality. In other words, who you are is not on the table when it comes to this discussion. Why? Because it's not inherent to who you are. Uh, A friend of mine who used to be the campus minister at the University of Stanford uh, in in, in Palo Alto, of all places, San Francisco, uh, the hotbed of the LGBT freedom movement, I asked him one time, I said, what's the number one conversation that you have with someone who is an advocate for the LGBT community? I'll never forget, he didn't even hesitate. He said, oh, that's easy. He said, the first thing I've got to establish is, is that your sexuality is not essential to your identity. Your sexuality will transform in the new heavens and the new earth. And so therefore, I will not say that it is something that is so powerful that if someone challenges it or challenges the feelings that you have or challenges the desires that you may have, whatever they may be, they've not gotten down to the true you. Which is, again, I think the the cry that comes out from that particular group. So the biblical vision for sex and relationship begins to open the road to human flourishing simply saying to people that God's obedience in the area of sexuality is good for them. And when we begin to craft a narrative for hearts as well as minds, we have to say a couple of things. Number one, we have to say that identity and learning to be God's creatures and image bearers is the big question. My identity is established. I'm his creature. Secondly, 
Sex in the divine image means that sexual desire is a pointer. It is not a thing in and of itself. Because he loves, because his love for us is fruitful, therefore our love for others must be fruitful as well. And then finally, flourishing as God's image bears means that when we come to the Lord of the universe, everything's on the table, including my sexuality. Man, I wish we could talk longer about this. But I want to at least leave uh, two minutes for questions. Sorry we went long. That's a little bit of a fire hydrant right there. Rob Kruger, what you got? Yeah, I can't say any better than that. Uh, that's exactly what I think Harrison's going at when he talks about the, uh, the Christian community learning to act like a minority, to think of itself like a minority. Because there shouldn't be no expectation of sort of uh, li- living as the ones in control of pulling the strings of a particular society. Those are, those, those are nationalistic dreams, I think, that, that we're not required to take on for ourselves. And again, it just makes perfect sense for why the gospel flourishes among the oppressed and among those who are painfully aware of their minority status. Not just in America. It's so funny to hear like social scientists specifically about, you know, religion is a, continues to be on the decline in America. Ooh. Among wealthy white people, yeah. But among the poor communities, among Hispanic and African American communities, it's still flourishing and growing. As it's doing also in Africa, northern India, and China. Why? Because there's oppression there. The idea of a minority sort of flourishes there. It will always go in that direction. That's a good point. Let me close in prayer for us and we'll head to worship. Lord Jesus, would you then uh, begin to speak to us in our struggle? We know for many people to even talk about this in public is uncomfortable because of the internal struggle that they're having. God, would you be very near and close to that soul uh, even uh, this morning uh, and perhaps come and bring a balm to them that they might see the face of Jesus uh, in our worship and hear, him in, in, hear from you in, our, in your word, that you might speak to them in the quiet places of their soul as we pray, that we might sing as we hymn you. All the goal, Lord Jesus, is to see you as we will one day face to face. Would you do that? We pray in Jesus' name.